please be seated. Thank you, Josh. Let's see. Well, it's working. Sometimes these Apple products, you never know. The salvation of our souls. You know what? Why are you here this morning? And I think that, as I kind of look around, I would have to say that we are all here for this very cause, for this very reason. It is the salvation of our souls. Because that we have come to Christ. We have <clears throat> responded to the gospel. And, that, and that's why we're here. Now, there are people, I'm sure, today that are meeting in various sundry places and buildings all over that are following something that is making them think that their eternal well-being or life after death, that they're procuring it somehow outside of what we're going to talk about this morning. And for those people, it is a sad thing because they're wasting their time. Maybe they feel better when they walk out of that place. And maybe there's some camaraderie or something, but they're wasting their time. Because, as you all know, apart from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no way to fix what's wrong with us. Now, <clears throat> as a little bit of an introduction to what we're going to talk about, and believe me, if, if then we all, by faith, are standing in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we are all saved right now, then I'm not going to really tell you anything new. But we're going to look at the doctrine of, of salvation. And my hope is that when we leave here this morning, we're more invigorated because of that. And even perhaps I've given you a few things that allow you to share the gospel more readily with other people. But... To kind of get into this, I would like to introduce you to the greatest pianist that ever wasn't. And to be a great pianist, it takes intellect, emotion, and practice. Lots of practice. Lots and lots of practice. But you also have to have a heart for it. You need emotion. You've got you to want to play, right? Because otherwise, what are, what are you doing? And the intellect that's involved is you have to be able to read notes that are on these little lines and that correspond to keys on the piano, right? So that's the intellect. Okay? The greatest pianist that ever wasn't was me. You didn't know that, did you? When I was just a young lad and my mom played the piano, and here's the crazy thing. The genes did not somehow make it into my pool. My mom could sight read to play, and she could play by ear. She could play by sight, and she could play by ear. And she'd never had a piano lesson. It was disgusting, because it didn't make it to me. <laughs> but I wanted to be a piano player. I, I, I wanted to be a great pianist. And when no one was home, I would go to our stereo cabinet. It's, you young people, it's a thing we used to have. It was a great big thing. This side had the records in it. There was two speakers in it, and in the middle was this thing that turned around, and you put these black things on it, and you dropped this needle on it carefully, and it played sound out of the speakers. And I'm not talking about a CD disc. It was these big black things and some little ones. And I would put on Roger Williams. 
Do I, do I, am I seeing any recognition? Roger Williams, a great, he was the piano player to the presidency. He played for nine different presidencies. He was a great piano player. I wanted to be, and when no one was home, I'd go and put his record on, and then I would sit at the piano and pretend like I was playing like that. You see, I had, I had the will, I had the desire, I had the emotion, and I also had the intellect, actually, because when I was about in sixth grade, my mom had me take this test at school. And after I took that test, life got difficult for me because it was an IQ test. And my mom used that to beat me with to get better grades for the rest of my life. She would say, Kim, I know you can do better because I saw the test results. I said, why did I take that test? So I had the intellect. I, wasn't, I, I could have done it. I could have read those notes on those lines. But one, I couldn't sit still long enough to do that. But I had the heart for it. But I didn't have a heart for practice. You had to practice. And that's where I just, it just kind of, I don't have time to practice. There are things to do. I need to get clear down to the other end of the ranch and check on those tracks down there from the coyote and see if, if it's been around that dead cow. I didn't have time to try to read those notes and correspond to the keys on the board. So I never became a great pianist. No loss to you all, so don't worry about it. But I'll tell you that I wrote skits in my mind using the piano if I'd have been able to play the piano, but that's okay. <clears throat> Soteriology is the study of the doctrine of salvation, and that comes from, soteriology comes from the Greek word for salvation. And it involves understanding, it involves realization, and it involves action. And it's kind of why I use the illustration of me wanting to be a piano player and not being it. I had a will to. I certainly wasn't dumb. I could have read the notes. But it came down to the practice is where it came down to and why I can't really play the piano except to do a few chords on the piano. And in our own Christian lives, when it comes to this, living out the gospel in our lives, it... it it requires understanding. We've got to get it from the Bible to our brain. That's our intellect. We've got to get it from then our brain, our head, to our heart. And that's the emotion. And it's okay for Christians to have emotions. Seriously. In fact, if the gospel and what it means to you does not move you emotionally, if it doesn't move you deep in your soul, something's, something's wrong. There's nothing wrong with emotions. God gave them to us. And then action from love to living. The love out of our heart, then into living. And that's the practice. And that's where I think practicing to live out, performing the gospel to a watching, a watching world is where we all need help, where we all need to maybe focus and practice more. That little note up there I put up there. Without the doctrine of salvation, we are just another vacuous religion amongst the universe of searching souls, right? Because if it weren't for the gospel, if it weren't for the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, then I'm just up here wasting my time and going through motions and uh, earning brownie points or something. I don't know. But if this isn't true and if it isn't real, then 
It's just a ritual. It's just something that we are falsely hoping in. So, obviously, this morning when we're done, you're gonna, we're going to answer the question, who needs to be saved? Why do you need to be? Why do you need saving? And what are you saved from? We'll get into that. that. That was one of my favorite pet peeves when I was a young Christian and going door to door sharing Christ in the malls. How are you saved and when are you saved? So we're going to get into that. Now, as the foundation work to looking at the doctrine of salvation, there are those who, when we talk about, when we get into the penal substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross, that he actually did get nailed to that cross, and he bled and died and suffered. There are those who have recently begun to deconstruct their faith because, and they have a problem with a loving God that would that kill, brutally kill his own son. I just can't get my mind wrapped around that. I'm going to have to think about this. I'm going to have to go home and deconstruct my faith. Well, it's not, if you're a student of scripture, it's not, that's not crazy. That's not far-fetched at all. Because God, it, because if you're a student of scripture and you just go back to Genesis, God is the lawgiver and he is the righteous judge. I mean, there is no court higher. Timothy 4, 8 Paul wrote, in the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. In James 4.12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? The lawgiver who is able to save or destroy. So, he is the lawgiver because he is the supreme authority. There is no authority higher. He is the supreme being. There just isn't anybody. There's no one else to appeal to. There's no one else. And the universe is not a democracy. It's not a republic. The supreme being of the universe has declared what his law is. It's not negotiable. And it's, and it's simple. It only makes sense. If you have the power to create, then you have the power and the right to rule and lay down the laws. Now, for some of those that think, well, I just can't see God doing that, putting his son on the cross, and why is it this way and why is it that way? If you are a student of Scripture, you will see that, it is, that God is perfectly consistent. He is not a capricious God. God doesn't wake up. Well, he doesn't sleep anyway. But just one day, God doesn't go, you know what? I'm kind of, I think I'm kind of done with this plan for mankind. I'm going I'm to alter this or something. He, he doesn't one day just decide that, well, you know, the work that my son did, I'm going to do it different. I'm just going to save everybody. I, I'm just going to say, I'm going to let everybody into heaven. Well, not only is that not, not only is that impossible because it's not in God's character, but then what kind of a God would that be? That would be a capricious God. You wouldn't know what he wanted, right? You wouldn't know from one week to the next. Every time we met here, it would be like, well, what, what's the word from God? 
this week? What, what do we need to do this week? Are we, are we okay with what we did last week, or do we have to change? Or, what would that, that wouldn't, that's crazy. And that's not God. God is not that way. In Genesis 2-7, we have a historical record that God created man, and he made him a living being. If you make it, then you know what it needs to do, and you can write the rules for what you made. You write the manual on it because you, you engineered it, you designed it, you manufactured it. And he laid down the law in Genesis 2.17. He said, you can eat from any tree except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you will not eat from. For the day that you eat from it, you will be like me and I'll let you in heaven. Nope, that's not what he said. He said, the day that you disobey me is the day you die. It's actually the day all mankind, all mankind will die. Don't touch it, don't eat it. So God laid down the law in the garden. And then, obviously, this becomes a problem for people if you don't take Genesis literally then this is not a historical conversation from God to Adam if you don't take Genesis literally. This is some kind of a fable that the Hebrews told their kids but when they put them to bed. So yeah, if, you don't, if you're in a position that you don't take the word of God literally, then yeah, I can see that you would have a problem with the doctrine of salvation and asking your son to be brutally killed on a cross. But this is a, an historical event. You have to keep that in your mind. This isn't a story we're reading out of a book. It is a narrative that God made sure that we had telling us that at a point in time past, in time, space, and matter, that's what it involved in this world, God spoke to his creation and told them what he expected. It's not something ethereal. And then God in Leviticus, as he was calling out a, a people unto himself, calling and calling out a people unto himself, in Leviticus 11.45, For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. And that's what God expected of his people, was to be holy. Now, there's a whole bunch of law that went with that, a whole bunch of things that had to be done in order for God to view his people as holy. And that's what all the blood sacrifice was for and all of the giving of the law. And he chose these people to be a witness, as Scripture testifies, to the rest of the world of God dealing with man. This is why God got so upset with his people is when he, they started being like the rest of the world, he got so upset because it was like, no. I chose you to be my people to show the rest of the world how it's supposed to be. You're not supposed to be like them. And that was the rub. Hebrews 9.22, as the writer of Hebrews wrote, and according to the law, one may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. No forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Yeah, if you read through... If you read Leviticus and you read the law, it's very bloody. Animals give their lives everywhere all the time. It's bloody. It's messy. 
It's what was required. Because God didn't want his people to forget what a mess we had made of his world. It's not that, again, it wasn't just arbitrary that God did and said what he said. It was a grievous thing to God when Adam and Eve sinned and he had to put them out of the garden. It was a grievous thing. Now, he had a plan that he put into motion. But that was also a grievous plan because he was going to have to give his son to pay the price to fix what, what we had broken. So it was a grievous thing. So it's not, it's not that God is bloodthirsty. Oh, God's such a bloodthirsty. No. It was a constant reminder to the people, this is a mess. This is about death and dying. And I never intended this. You did this. So you have to kill these animals. You have to sprinkle their blood around because you did this. It's not what I wanted. The prescribed penalty for breaking the law, for being broken, it was death. Death in this life and death in the next life, the second death. Dying for all eternity. You know, that's, that's, really, what, that, that's really what the lake of fire is going to be. You're going to die a physical death if, if you do not, if you have not availed yourself of the salvation found in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are going to die a physical death. And that may not be so bad. I mean, you might just go in your sleep. You know, you might get pneumonia and wake up dead. I mean, that may not be so bad. The bad part is, is that you are going to die for the rest of eternity. I don't know if you've ever thought of that. You're going to die without being able to die. Cut off from God. Wanting to die and you can't. That's what, that's what the second death is. And that's clearly reiterated. It's clearly laid out in Scripture. Romans 6.23, we all know that. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But that's the penalty. The penalty is, the penalty for sin is death. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's a horrible thing. In Revelation 21, 8, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and liars... Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's the prescribed penalty. That is what we all deserve. And that is where we all were headed. And that is where everyone who does not know the Lord Jesus, though they may may be trying even this morning to be religious, that is exactly where they're headed. They're headed for the penalty to pay the penalty for their sin. Not because God is a mean God, but because God told us what he expected and he laid down the law. Now, just as there was an act of salvation, there's an act of judgment. 
It's, a, it's, an, it's not some ethereal thing. It's not something that happens off somewhere. It is an actual act, the act of judgment. And there's no need for salvation if there isn't any judgment. If God does not judge us, then what do we need to be saved from? There is judgment. You, you can't have this soft, you know, warm, fuzzy feeling type of stuff. Oh, well, God doesn't really judge us. Yes, he does. Because if you don't have a judgment, you appear before, you've broken the law and you appear before the judge. He is going to make a judgment and he's going to give you the penalty. He's going to give you your sentence. Here's the penalty. This has to be paid. 90 days in jail or whatever it is. That's the penalty. It has to be paid. With no judgment, then, there is no penalty to be paid. You see how that works? There has to be a judgment so that there can be a penalty, and then that penalty has to be paid. That's just how it works. And it's no different with our salvation. It's no different with the gospel and the way that God has, has laid it all out. It's very logical. It's not weird. It's not esoterical. It just makes sense. The law was broken. The judgment was given. And there's a penalty to pay. Can you and I pay the penalty that's required to save our own souls? Sorry, we can't. That's made clear in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because, why? Because all have sinned. In 2 Thess 1.8 and 9, Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel, which is, this is the verse I used before too. These will pay the penalty. These will pay the penalty. Unless you've done something different. There's an act of judgment. There's a penalty to be paid. It is required. Pay the penalty. The act of salvation... The saving of our souls is that we stand here guilty. The judgment is against us. There is a penalty we have to pay that we, we're going to forfeit our souls because we can't pay it. But then we find that there's a way to be saved because there was something that occurred historically occurred in the past. God Almighty, the creator, interjected into time, space, and matter, his son, born as the God-man to fix what we had broken. So the act of salvation is a very real historical event that took place, like I said, not metaphorically, but in real time, real space, and involved very real matter. It involved the very real flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, he didn't have a special body. I mean, in terms of, like he was immune to pain, that he didn't bleed, that he didn't, no, he was just like you and me. If, he, if somebody closed the door on his finger, it hurt. If he got a splinter in his finger, it festered up and was painful. It wasn't like that he was given special DNA. He felt you and I's pain just like we feel it. 
John 19.30. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The final act of his job to give us salvation, that happened. That occurred. There were people standing around the base of the cross, and they heard Jesus say, it is finished. It's not a movie. John Wayne is not at the foot of the cross going, surely he was the son of God. No. There were real soldiers, real Roman soldiers, that had divided his clothing, and they heard him and others standing around there, they heard him say, it is finished. Mission accomplished. And it happened in time and space. We believe it because a record was written for us by not just some lone guy living in a cave who popped this stuff up. No. The people that followed him and loved him and watched him be crucified wrote it for us. And our helper, the Holy Spirit, superintended that. And in Acts, it's, it's like this is reiterated after the facts. Acts 2, 3, uh, 2.36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is some time after Christ's, even Christ's ascension. But they're making it, they're, they're talking to the rulers, the uh, Jewish rulers here and saying, let's be clear about this. You crucified him. Now that was, that was to our betterment. He had to die for us. But it's a historical event. This is someone talking after the event and said he was crucified. In 1 Corinthians 2, 8, and Paul writes, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age had has understood, for if they had really understood who Jesus was and what was going on, they would not have crucified him. First Peter 3.18, Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust. He was just, we were unjust. So that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In the flesh, he was put to death. He wasn't put to sleep, and God floated him off, took him out of it. No. He died. He suffered. Now, the incalculable cost of salvation, which is something that sometimes intellectually doesn't, we don't really think about it, so it, we can be kind of, you know, get goosebumps and warm and fuzzy, but It just seems like a lot of times I run into Christians that haven't intellectually thought this through. The the cost of salvation to the Godhead. Before Christ came, we have the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now, how they existed, we can't know. I mean, it's beyond us. But however they existed, they obviously existed in harmony and unity and That was the Trinity. That was the three of them. But one of them is asked to do something. The father asks the son to do something 
that's never, ever, ever been done by the Godhead before. It's going to change ever so slightly the Godhead. Because one of them is going to go and become the God-man. It, it changes something. We can't understand. We can't grasp what it changes. But it changed something. I mean, you know how it is when you have a trio and you're all very close. I mean, not that they weren't close anymore, but it changed something that we can't understand because it wasn't that God, the Son, became a man and then went back to heaven and became God the Son again. That wasn't it. When the Son agreed to become the God-man, to take on a human body and to die a horrible death, he agreed to do it knowing that he would, once he had done that and once he was raised from the dead and given his glorified body, he knew that that's how he would remain for the rest of eternity. You see? He knew he was going to be changed. He was never going back to what it, whatever it was that we don't understand that he was before. He knew going into it that it would never be the same for him. He was going to be the savior of the world, the God-man, and, and never what he was before. Because if ever, in the continuum of time moving forward, he ever changes, what happens? Have you thought about that? He literally can't change without unraveling the universe. Because God can't change. It would undo our salvation if he changed. Because he must remain God, the Son, in human form. As the Savior of the world. So we just can't even get our mind wrapped around what that was that he agreed to do. And at what cost. Because we just think, oh, it's, it's Jesus. It was God the Son. He can do anything. But it cost him. It wasn't just like... A walk in the park for him. It wasn't because he, and, and, it's, and it wasn't a walk in the park for him because he took on human form and he suffered and died. And now he remains as the Lord of Lords and the kings of, uh, King of Kings forever. Cannot change. Because if he does, I, I mean, he just cannot change. It can't change. Because God is unchanging. He became the God man for us forever. And it's, and, it's, and it's clear in Luke 24, 39. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see, because the spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, as you plainly see. And scripture, moving forward from here, makes it very clear that Jesus remains this way forever as our Savior. And when we see him, we will what? We will what? When we see him, we will be like him. Philippians 2, 6, that's why this verse has so much impact. If you really, really think about the practicality of it, who, although he existed in the form of God, he was God the Son, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That state, that, that, that which it was as the triune God, he didn't hold on to that. He didn't say, well, you know what? That's going to change things. I don't want to do that, Dad. I'm not, no, no, figure something else out. 
No, that's what Philippians is telling us. He didn't regard equality with God a thing to be held on to, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. Forever. For us, that's the cost of salvation. It's not just some flippant thing that God said, ah, we'll just take care of that. Now, the work of salvation, the work of salvation is this, being justified. And there used to be a saying, just as if I'd never sinned, because it's kind of a little, you know, it's a little cliche, you know, justified is just as if I'd never sinned, except that that's not, re that's not really good hermeneutics for this reason. Our debt was not canceled. That's very important to understand. Our debt was not canceled. It was paid. Right? Have you thought about that? It wasn't canceled. It wasn't like, oh, well, God's a great God, and he's, he, he can just write canceled on there. No, it doesn't work like that. There was a penalty to be paid. There was a debt to be paid. It wasn't canceled. It was paid. Who paid it? Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't show up on earth with his dad's credit card and said, hey, I'll take care of it. Come here. Who wants to, or I'll, you know. He didn't go set up a table in the temple and say, okay, who wants their debt canceled? I'll just, I'll send this to my dad and your debt of sin will be canceled. He didn't do that. Because it wasn't about canceling a debt. It was about paying a debt. And it could only be paid by Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God. And that, God declaring that we are justified, that the ledgers are zero balance, it's an act of God based on his own character because he declares us forgiven according to his own law because the debt was paid according to his own law. Do you see that? You're not, we're not going to get a final notice in the mail that our account's been turned over to collections because the Lord Jesus paid the debt. It's not canceled. Some, I, I've heard some people use that. Yeah, our, our debt of sin has been canceled. No, it actually wasn't. If it was just canceled, God could have done that from heaven. But it had, the debt had to be paid. The Lord Jesus. Romans 3.24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. And Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ because he paid the debt. And Romans 5.9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him because the, the balance sheet says zero in the column, not because the debt was canceled, but because over in this column, under Jesus' name, check number Jesus Christ paid, not canceled, paid. And so we have a zero balance on the debt, on the penalty side, on the debt side. Sometimes we just don't think about the little details. But I'm telling you that if you get this in your head and then it gets in your heart, it's going to come out in your practice. When you share the gospel, it's going to give you greater understanding for communicating with people what it is. It's not just like, well, you need to ask Jesus into your heart so he can forgive you for your sins. And then come to my church. That's what we used to do when we go door to door. I'd say, what, what do you... You don't ask Jesus in your heart. He's not saving you from your sins. 
He's saving you from the penalty of your, the judgment from your sins. Okay, understanding from the Bible to the brain. So who needs to be saved? Oop, go back, Kim. What are you doing? Who needs to be saved? Certain people? Who? Everybody. Every single soul. Past, present, future. All the future souls that are going to be born also needs to have their debt, the penalty paid. And why? Why do you need to be saved? Here's where we kind of sometimes drop the ball when we're witnessing to people. But if you ever happen to have an experience where something in your past prohibits you from something, doing something now or in the future, you will kind of grasp what that really is. Because if there's something that happened in the past and it prohibits you from doing something that you really, really want to do, you can't go back in time and undo it. You're stuck with it. And you can't get what you want. You can't go where you want to go. Because you're broken. We are all broken. There is nothing, nothing that we can do to fix what's wrong with us. And we don't want to really want to think about that. There's things that we are or have that can't be fixed. But it's true. What is wrong with us and what prohibits us from spending eternity in God's heaven is that we are broken and there is not a thing we can do to fix that. We are helpless to fix it. That's why we need to be saved, why we need a Savior. And so when we're dealing with people, one of the, one of the things, in order to avoid easy believism, one of the things is, is it's not just share Jesus and say, hey, ask Jesus into your heart, and hey, you're good, and you don't have to worry. It's like fire insurance. Okay, here we go. And then you can do this and this. And this. No, that's not it. You come to Jesus because you have a need. And when you fully understand that you have that need, guess what it does? It has a humbling effect on us. There is a companion message to this one. This is the salvation of our souls. I have a companion message called the submission of our souls. Because when you truly understand what the gospel is, what it takes to avail yourself of the gospel, then it is a humbling thing. You must humble yourself before God in order to admit that, yes, absolutely, I'm broken. And that's where repentance comes in. Right? That you are truly sorry that he had to do what he did to send his son and you're also truly sorry that you don't have the ability to pay the penalty. But you're so grateful that he will take care of that. And we're saved. Yes, we're saved from our sins to a certain extent. But mostly we are saved from the judgment of our sins. And we are saved by faith. That's, for some people, it just seems too, too simple. And when are you saved? When you believe. That moment of realization that you are broken, that he's the answer, and that he's going to fix you. 
now and forever, you're saved. And the realization, to get it from our head to our heart, you have to rehearse the gospel. We have to remind ourselves what the gospel is every single day. We have to remind ourselves that we are a broken individual and we would be headed for hell, the lake of fire, were it not for the Lord Jesus Christ. But we've availed ourselves. We have placed our faith in him for that. And the helper is helping us to try to rescue other people so that they don't go off the cliff as well. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved for you in heaven, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So it has to get to our heart. The finality of the final reality for the believer and the unbeliever, there is a final reality. Whether you deny it or it doesn't matter. There is a final reality. The final reality is you will die. You will stand before the creator. Here's what we have to do to rehearse the gospel and get it from here to here. Now, for some of you younger kids, you may not recognize those. (laughs) Disneyland. Do you know, can you imagine if his last name was Smith? Smithland? I just thought of that the other night. These are the old things. There's no such thing as um, fast passes back when I was a little kid, about 10 years old. You had to have these ticket books. I never got to carry mine. My parents carried it because I lost them. They had tickets from A to, to E. The E ticket is what you always wanted because they're like the Matterhorn and the fun rides. Hence the old saying, which is now lost on the younger generation. Wow, I'll bet she's an E ticket, right? So don't get it. But Kim, what are you doing? Why, why are you bringing it? And this was the Disneyland of days gone by, okay? So don't be offended. What, why, what, 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 are, you, what are you trying to get at? Well, you see this thing in the corner down here? Are we there yet? Are you you starting to get kind of a a hint? Once in a great while, in a great while, because it was expensive even back then, my parents would take my sister and I, or my brothers and sisters and I, to Disneyland. They learned, I think, after the first time that you don't tell Kim we're going until like the day before or something, because he will drive us crazy. And I would. What day is it? When are we going? How can we? What is it? Can I do your homework first? Ah, do I? I want to go now. And then once we got in the car and we were headed there, it was this all the way there. And we lived on ranches here and there. It usually took hours to get to Disneyland. And I would drive my parents crazy with, "Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there?" And then we would get there, and I would just stand in Main Street and just take it all in. I mean, all right. I'm a farm boy, okay? I'm a ranch kid. This is Disneyland. I dreamed about being there. I would lay in bed at night and think about it. I'm going to go on Dumbo because they'll let me use the little thing. I can go up and down. And when it's this, I was obsessed with it. Do you see where I'm going with this? That should be how we think about heaven are we there yet we should wake up every morning are we there yet no not quite okay but we're going to be there because i'll tell you when i get there i'm standing on that street talked about in revelation and i'm just like i was at disneyland i'm going to take it all in you have to take the time in your life to think about that because it's going to happen just like it was 
it was going to happen, and it did happen when I went to Disneyland, just as real as that was, so is heaven going to be. And we have to rehearse that in our hearts because we have to long to be there, not long to be here. I know that life can be a drag here, but we don't. Sometimes it's just we're bummed out because it's such a drag to be here. But we should be longing for that city. No comparison to Disneyland. I used to, when I was younger, kind of. In fact, I, I have to admit, when I was about 10 years old, I remember one time. So we're going to go to Disneyland. I remember praying this prayer. I, I prayed, Lord, I know you got to come back whenever you're coming back, could you, but could you please not come back tomorrow? We're going to Disneyland. But that childlike anticipation of going to this place, we should have that anticipation in our hearts and our souls and our minds. We're going. I mean, because I can remember, I've been bouncing around the house. We're going to Disneyland, we're going to Disneyland, we're going to Disneyland. In our adult selves inside, we should be dancing around going, I'm going to heaven, I'm going to heaven. I got to take more people with me, I'm going to heaven. And that work of salvation that is being glorified is finished, it's complete, and it's perfect. And in Corinthians, Paul writes in 15, 53, and 54 that this perishable must put on the imperishable, the mortal put on immortality, because when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death has been swallowed up in victory. And that's what we long for, and that's what we should long for. Because one day we're going to be glorified. We get to get out of these bodies. Isn't that great? I mean, just from a practical standpoint, I think about it and go, yeah, that's great. No more colonoscopies, no more, no more chemo, no more, you know, no more going to the dermatologist and having stuff cut and burned off me. I can't wait to get another body. They're taking mine slowly from me. And that glorified thing of being there in heaven, Revelation 22, 3 and 4, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. We're going to serve him. We will see his face, and his name will be on our foreheads. Now stop and think about that. He's going to put his name on our foreheads. You know what that means? That means it's like, a VIP pass or something. We can go anywhere in heaven we want to because we have his name on our forehead. I mean, that's how we got into heaven, right? Think about that tonight when you fall asleep. We're going to have his name on our... So the action from our love to our living. We, it's not important just to rehearse the gospel every day, but we need to perform the gospel every day. Why do we practice the gospel? Why do we review it? Every morning or whatever in our minds is so that we can perform it to a watching world and we can readily give an answer of the hope that lies within us. And the sanctifying work of salvation is we aren't fixed yet, we're just forgiven. Have you ever thought about that? We're not fixed yet. There isn't such a thing as sinless perfection. We're not fixed yet. We're trying to get there. But if we were fixed... And we didn't sin anymore when we came to faith right at that moment. 
Have you ever asked yourself, well, if that was the case, then don't you think that we would be instantaneously, individually raptured? Poof. Oh, he believed. Poof. Oh, he, she believed. And then, you know, as you believed, you just, no, that's not how it works. And if we were fixed, we wouldn't sin anymore, but we do. Because our flesh, our flesh is still flawed. But we have a what? We have a helper. A helper that we too frequently don't, don't avail ourselves of. He's here to help us in the here and now. And help us do what? To become more like our Savior. The helper of our salvation. We are never alone. The helper and keeper, the sealer of our salvation. And this is just a reminder to us. When Jesus was here, literally on the earth, and he said to his disciples, I'll take care of you, don't worry, I got it covered, you'll see. That's not what he did. He told his disciples, and, that's, and he's speaking to all of us, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. We're not left alone. And Jesus said, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will testify about me. He will bear witness of me in you and your lives. And in Corinthians, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a what? As a pledge. Do you realize that? That the Holy Spirit, the helper that's given to us to not only help us to practice the gospel and to perform the gospel he's the pledge of our salvation in other words that we are saved that when we stand before God we have no fear because we are one of his the hope of our salvation is the understanding and realization of the gospel and that should Compel us. Did I have a... Was there a Corinthians over here? Nope, it's not the one. Okay. In Hebrews, so by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have taken ref, We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. That is our salvation. Now, we use the word hope differently than, than Scripture uses hope. Because we use the word hope, well, is he going to be here? Well, I hope he is. Well, that's a little bit iffy, right? Is that going to work? Well, I hope it works. I mean, it's one of those, you know, two ladders tied together with rope and trying to get to this, and it's all real shaky. And, and is that going to work? Well, I hope it does. Well, there's, there's a probability that it's not someone's going to the ER today or something. That's, we use that word hope in a completely different way than what Scripture is talking about. Scripture, in talking about the hope of our salvation, is that it's a sure thing. It is something we look forward to. As a little kid, when I hoped we were going to Disneyland, it was a fulfilled hope. It was something that was going to happen. My parents said on Saturday, we're going to Disneyland. We were going. And it became history the hope of our salvation of being saved is just that 
It is the assurance. It is something that we look forward to. Because as Paul said, look, you don't hope for things you can see. That's not hope. You're hoping. You're counting on. It's going to be because God has said it. And hope, as Paul said, does not disappoint because God's love is poured out in our hearts. And that love poured out in our hearts should spill out all over everything we do every day. You got that? God's love, this is Romans, exalting in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. And hope does not, that's, we are going there, no doubt about it, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So I think that's exactly right. The love that God's poured out in our hearts should spill out all over every single thing we do in everyday life, at home, work, whatever, here. Because he poured his love out into our hearts. And the practice of this, and I couldn't help it, I just was in that frame of mind. The practice of this, that hope, and the assurance of our salvation is what has motivated Christians for well, ever since that day on the cross. And I just happened to pick on Fanny Crosby, Frances Jane Van Alstyne. She wrote over 8,000 hymns. 8,000. Actually, they think it's closer to 9,000 because she used a couple of pseudo, you know, pen names. Because it was hard to sell her stuff because everybody thought oh, she couldn't possibly write that much. She lived to be like 94, something like that. Blind, almost from birth. But all of the hymns that she wrote are like, can you not identify with them? Her mom died and her dad died. Her, she was raised by, she was a stepson to that mom, or stepdaughter to that mom, and her grandmother helped her with being blind. She wrote 8,000 hymns pouring, God's love spilled out all over every hymn she wrote. Or Horatio Spafford, who wrote, It is well with my soul. That was true for him. That's how he could write that hymn when his family had been taken from him. He wasn't despondent. He wasn't depressed. He wasn't bummed out. The hope of knowing that he would see his family in heaven, the hope of salvation, inspired him to write. Those words to it is well with my soul. So I'm going to ask you. In the practice, when you take what you know about the great gift of salvation and the gospel, and you take that and you, and you let it filter down into your heart, and you practice the gospel every day, you reiterate it to yourself. And then you go out and perform it before a watching world. And you let the love of God that's poured out in your heart pour out all over everything you do. What will that be? What will you do? And it may be as simple as sharing the gospel with a coworker or someone you met in the store or whatever. The love of Christ compels us. It's interesting. In, in Corinthians, when Paul talks about the love of Christ compelling or constraining us, it's interesting because if you look at that Greek word, that Greek word actually has to do with a stanchion. 
And when I saw that, I said, nah, I know what that is. I grew up on a ranch. You have a corral of cows, and you've got to do something. Like at one time, we had to test blood and tag them and all this stuff. And you run them down to shoot, and then at the end of that shoot is this stanchion that is very small, very narrow, and they just fit into it. And when they stick their head through the hole thinking they're going to get out, you shove this bar down and you trap them right there. They don't really like it. And you do whatever you need to do with them. And sometimes they won't go down that chute. We had cattle prize, D batteries in these cattle prize. And you would sit there and just, you would think, how much can this cow take? So they wouldn't go down the chute. And finally they'd go down the chute and try to jump through that hole. And you'd have half cow in, half cow out. But you constrained them there to do something very specific for their health. You didn't do it for fun. It wasn't fun at all. You did it for them. You constrained them in order to help them. So the love of Christ constrains us to help us in what we do, to move forward, to pour out the love of God on everything that we do. We are constrained, or another word is compelled. Think of the word compelled. The love of Christ compels us to practice the gospel and perform the gospel every day. And you know what? Sometimes it's by word. Sometimes it's by actions. But we are constrained, compelled by the love of Christ because the love of Christ is what paid our penalty. And we can be like a little kid running around. I'm going to Disneyland. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to heaven. It's okay to get emotional about this stuff. It's okay to run around the house and do that. Nobody will tell on you. But we don't think about it because too many other things crowd into our lives. But it's real. It's going to be real. It's going to happen. Isn't that great? You get as excited as me as a little kid going to Disneyland. Let's pray. Lord God, how grateful we are that you are a great God, the great God of the universe, who founded in your heart to pour out the love from your heart into our hearts. And boy, does the world ever need us to spill that love out onto everything we do in connection with them. These, these are hard things to do because it does not come natural to us. It, it is hard for some of us, Lord, to share the gospel. It's hard sometimes in life struggles and, and the constraints of time to practice and rehearse the gospel in our minds to keep it fresh. Why we're even here. Why we even come here every Sunday. And that there is a multitude of people that are going to wind up in the lake of fire. They're going to wind up forever dying away from your presence. So help us, Lord. Help us. We're, we're off.